crop of Bacchanalian delight. That's courtesy of the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> there hasn't been a good, honest Evo shouted in New York since the 12th century BC. So who would like to holler off there back at a piano for all of us? In fact, let us do it now for the entire Western world. At ease, Danny. It is June. Yes, it's June. This is the month of poetry. This is the month of mystery. Thousands of novels have been written and opened up. It was a clear, beautiful day in June. And that's exactly what it is. June. 1965. And right now, out there in the darkness, there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands, maybe millions, who are about to make an irrevocable decision. Because it's June. <laughs> Just because it's a beautiful night. And because the poets have said this is the time to do it. <laughs> and you know how poets, they know all about that stuff. And forever and ever and ever, they are going to carry with them the memory of a June that is non-erasable, like permanent ink. Should they do it, Jane? <laughs> His wife says, what's he talking about? <laughs> Well, all right. We're in the limelight in Greenwich Village, right in the heart of the Fleischmann's yeast area of existence, <laughs> where life is like a teeming cake of bacteria and fungi, rich and deep. And it's June. Now, what is all this about, this excitement? It's about men and women. Nobody ever gets excited about the mating call of the greater ibex. Nobody ever talks about how the moose swing in Maine. And they do. <laughs> if you're going to make it on Broadway, it's got to be about, guess what? Men and women. And oddly enough, almost all the plays are written about sensitive women. Electra. I can name hundreds of them. Nobody talks about the masculine mystique. <laughs> you, know, you always hear about the feminine mystique. What is the masculine mystique? Well, this afternoon, old Shep did something, and I don't care how hip you are as a male, even if you're sitting up there at the fire wearing an ascot and pink shoes, <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. Shep did something this afternoon in New York City that every last male will understand. American male. A little twinge of excitement. Shepard stood at bat, stood up there in that, in that big batter's box in Yankee Stadium with 20,000 people all looking down. And the announcer said, the next batter is number 11. Echoes. I'm wearing number 11. I got a big batting helmet on, see? Just number 11, Gene Shepard, playing third base. I spit. 
That's me, man. Kick the dirt a little bit, you know. Yankee Stadium. And they gave each one of us a real Yankee hat. This is not the kind they sell in the stands at little kids, you know. Oh, no, this is the real thing. A Yankee baseball cap. Shepard puts it on. The House of David, right away, you know. <laughs> Back in the class D minor, you know. Well, Shepard puts the hat on, you see. And I want to tell you how this master of mystique works. Put the hat on, I got the suit on. We're in a real Yankee uniform. It's got number 11 on the back. Hector Lopez, who is a Yankee outfielder, wears number 11. I got one of Hector's suits. I'm burning. You can the sweat. You can smell it. It's still there, you know? A little blood here on the thigh, you know? You can see where he slid in a second. They laid the tag on him. And now Shepard's wearing the same armor. Walks around out there in his batter's box. Puts up with the crowd. Spits. Pauses a little bit. Reaches down into the dirt. This is a great feeling, by the way. The TV cameras are all gone. Shepard picks up a little dirt. Picks up the fat. Isn't that a great feeling, men, to be in the on-deck circle? With your knee on the same rubber pad that Roger Maris puts his knee on every day. I put my, put my knee down on that rubber pad. I looked out over that, that green sward and waited for my turn. Well, it's a, it's, it's a masculine mystique. I get up to bat, and that mound, by the way, at Yankee Stadium is a real mound. You don't see this from television. That guy is standing up on top, on top of Mount McKinley. You look up, you know. Yeah, you look, you look way up there, see? Some shepherd looks out like that. You know, you, this is, by the way, do you know that, that, that there are many old ladies who complain about ball games? <laughs> you ever watch what Maris always does just before he swings? <laughs> only, on, only on sports on TV do you see real life happening. You know? <laughs> You'll have to explain that to her when you get home. Maris really does, you know. He gets up there. He doesn't care who's watching. You know? He just walks up there. And by the way, there's all kinds of notes. Are you aware of this, man, that there are notes in the Yankee dressing room about things just like that? It says, when in front of the cameras, remember. And they have these little notes about, uh, well, you know what guys wear in athletic contests, don't you? It says, adjust them before the game. <laughs> well, you know, after all, the guys up at bat. Well, let me tell you a little more about that masculine mystique, though. It is, it is unbelievable to a guy who lives in the ordinary 20th century world that most of us live in, you know, the office world where men and women and chicks and stenographers and bosses are all kind of the same, you know? They, there's hardly any differentiation between men and women. Machines, the whole thing. You come down here in the village and a lot of chicks walking around with leather boots up to their neck, you know? Oh, yeah, the chicks with the bull whips popping them down. You walk around, yeah, a chick knocked me off the sidewalk the other. She says, out of the way, Mac. I says, I'm sorry, girly. She says, what did you say? <laughs> well, man, you know, 
So, you know, it's a different world. Well, you get down there in Yankee Stadium, down there in that dressing room where these guys take their showers and all that, and all of a sudden you're reminded of something that you have vaguely forgotten. That there are places where men genuinely are, you know? And there's no fooling around. So I'm standing. Can you imagine this beautiful scene, men? You're all men. Old Shep is standing in the shower. There's about 35 guys in the shower. See, the water's coming down and it's hot. And I'm adjusting the thing. And here's this little short, tough-looking guy next to me. He's in the shower. And he says, Mac. I says, yeah. The pass is soap. I pass him the soap. He says, here you are, Mac. And it's Whitey Ford. <laughs> Shepard is in the sh same shower with Whitey Ford. You know, he says, give me the soap, Mac. You'd be surprised. We all looked exactly the same. <laughs> you never would believe it, you know. We're all in the shower. And I said, all the way, Mac. And I walk out. He didn't know who I was, you know. I may be the young rookie outfielder from Pittsburgh or something. You know? Well, let me tell you something else that you don't ever hear about baseball and about the masculine mystique. When you come out of the showers there, the water's rushing, it's pouring down. These guys are running around, you know, they got towels on, yelling at each other, and they've got all the lockers in here. And it's just, just kind of a soft gray decor, very neutral. It's like, the, it's like the inside of a battleship. Yeah, you get that same sense of a wardroom. And it's not even connected with the Bronx. It's not connected with Greenwich Village. It's just there by itself. And when you come out of the shower, they've got a big rack. It's like pigeonholes. And they've got packages of cigarettes there, you know, given by the sponsor. They've got a package of gum for guys who want to chew gum in the game. And then they've got a great big compartment that is filled with beach nut chewing tobacco. Beach nut chewing tobacco. They don't pass that around at BBD and O. <laughs> this is just something you do not see handed around, you know, in those little French restaurants. Honey, would you like a chew? You know, like that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so, so I take a look at this thing, see, and, I, I, and I, immediately I begin to debate in my mind, shall I go all the way? Shall I really play it up big this afternoon and go out there with a big half-pound wad of beech nut under the tongue there? <laughs> well, I decided not to because of a fantastic experience. This is something that women will never experience. I don't know whether women ever have to prove to other women when they're growing up as kids that they are really real that they're women. Do women ever have to do that? Well, let me tell you something about men for, for those of you who are women and don't understand quite this thing. You know, a lot of women get mad. They say, Shepard, what do you mean? Men and women are the same. They're just human beings. <laughs> That's something that men have wondered about for years. Well, one thing women have never had to do, and that is run the gauntlet of the great Chicken clawed chooser. You know those two guys that are choosing up sides? All boys have had that feeling. You know where they toss the bat back and forth and say, Okay, Al, 
Let's me and Al choose up. Okay, are you guys? Look at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always two of them, you know. Mike and Al, the choosers. They are never put on the block. They are never put on the block to be, to be judged. They do the judging. So here's Mike and Al. All right, Mike, let's go. Okay, Al. They throw the bat. All right, here he goes. Flip, let's flip for the drop. They flip. All right, let's go. Um, 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 um. Chicken claws! Okay. Okay, you got first choice, Al. And Al walks back and forth. And here is the cattle. Here's the meat, see, all standing, looking real eager. It's okay, Howie. Howie is always chosen first. He's got that long, flat stomach. Howie is not a chooser, but he's one who is always chosen first. Okay, Howie. Then Mike walks around. Okay, Chuck, you, Chuck, let's go. All right. Al says, Harry, Harry, let's go, Harry. And inch by inch, the line gets smaller until suddenly... There's just three guys standing there. Three guys. And Al walks over and he says, uh, Oh, well. Uh, listen, Mike. Look, you take Dave and I'll throw in the other two. And you are one of the other two. A throw-in deal. And ten minutes later, you're out there in right field playing right field where no one has ever hit a ball in the last 75 years of sandlot baseball. The grass is growing up to you and you've got your mitt. You can't even see the batter down there. And, and, and then comes that awful moment. Clock. And hey, hey, Fred, Fred. And you're Fred. What? What? Hey, Fred, grab it. And that ball is coming down. There's two things that go through your mind. Oh, no. And then there's the other one says, Wow, they hit one to me. And then sense takes over again. Says, Oh, no. And you got it in the teeth. Many a guy has, has a terrible malocclusion today resulting from a bad judgment of a fly ball. Well, I don't know whether women have this problem. No, I'm serious about this. I wonder, maybe this is why women never grow up to be the kind of novelist men are. You can't imagine a woman writing Moby Dick. You just can't. Every, every line of Moby Dick, I can see Herman Melville as the kid who never was chosen. Every line. Tom Wolfe, same thing. Well, okay, see. Today, I'm in Yankee Stadium. And I see that beech nut chewing tobacco. And it suddenly hits me, this fantastic experience that I once had of June many eons ago that, uh, that occurred in that same masculine arena of the great chicken claw choosers. I'm just out of school. I'm this urchin, see. I've just gotten out of high school. And by the way, there's a half a dozen kids here right now that are still wearing the white carnation of the graduate. You know, Bronx High School of Science. Yeah, and they're standing on the brink, on the edge, on the precipice, on the veritable razor edge line of making it out of that great womb, you know, that wonderful, soft, warm world of kiddom. 
and the rest of it out. You know, some guys just don't leave anymore. Are you aware that's the new hip thing? You can be a kid now well into your 50s. If you work it, right, you know, and hang around the right campuses. <laughs> are you aware this is a new big problem? Guys just won't leave the campus. There are some guys who graduated in 48 that are still at UCLA. Walking around, you know, with the chinos, spitting and hollering, you know. Well, all right. Okay. I am just out of high school. And the big break has come. I got a job in the steel mill. Well, I don't know whether this means anything to you or not. But this is a mill town, see? And the whole world of that town was based on the steel mills. As long as I'd been a kid, I could see those dark shapes over there on the horizon, see? And I could see those flickering red lights of the steel mill open hearts. And all the guys that made it worked at the mill. That was like here in New York, you know, most kids in New York are showbiz oriented. If they get a job working for David Merrick, they're in, you know, or BBDNO. But out there, if you said you worked at the open heart, you were big. Well, all right. Two weeks after I get in the mill, they're giving me a training course. It's like a preliminary. And one night, Shep is assigned to his first job on a steel mill labor gang. Now, a labor gang in the steel mill is like a football team. Each guy knows the other guy's work, and they work on tonnage. You know about this thing? It's like a team. And I'm assigned to this team. We're going to work tonight in the open heart. Got the scene? It's June. I've still got a white carnation on my overalls. And in my lunch bucket, you know, is my diploma. And I still got that nice sort of soft, acne-ridden, that kind of worried look in the eye of a kid who took 17 years to get through Algebra 2. <laughs> and now I'm out in the real world. And I'm put on the night shift. It's on the 4 to 12 shift. And they told me, be down at the clock house at 10 minutes to 4. The bus will pick all of you up and take you to the open heart. And so that night at home, I'm getting ready to go to work that excitement. There must be a million kids out there listening who are preparing their first job right now, just getting out of high school or college. Boy, the excitement. Man, I've pressed my overalls. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've taken, I've even polished my brand new steel capped safety shoes. I got the goggles. I've got the big steel safety helmet. I'm all excited. At 10 minutes to 4, I am standing in front of the clock house. And all these bullhunks are going in. All these guys that I'm going to work with, you know, just walk past with their lunch bucket. The look at a steel worker going in. And standing right next to the clock house is a man handing out little packages. Listen carefully. He's giving out samples. He's got a big box, and he's handing out these beautiful little square packages. Well, in those days, do you remember the days when you used to get little sample packages of puff rice? Remember that? A little sample package of cream of wheat? Well, I figure, you know, they're giving me a sample package of cocoa malt or something, you know? <laughs> Stand outside a steel mill, and he's handing these, these guys, okay, Mac, yeah, they walk in. And I take mine and walk in. I get in the bus. I sit down, open my hand, 
and it is a sample package of eight-hour cut mule navy plug. Well, <laughs> this is a plug, you know, and it's dark. It's about the color of old used tar. It's got little spikes sticking out of it. It's got fur on it. It's got little claws, a couple of little eyeballs looking out of it, you know. And it, and it smells funny. Have you ever been around camels? You know, it's very, it doesn't smell like, you know, and on, on the cover, the package said under, it said, sweet as applesauce. There it is, this little thing is wiggling in my hand, you know. And it's dark, you know, already it's dark in a steel mill. There's a kind of a purple emanation around it, you know, it's kind of glowing. And sitting next to me is this Czechoslovakian worker, Stanek. Stanek has stuffed the whole thing in his mouth. He's just, oh. And on the other side, he's got half a salami sandwich. And a cigar sticking out of the middle, see? Two cigarettes out here that Stanek was just sitting there. I look, you know. And across from me is Wismer, Doc Wismer. Who's the for he's the foreman, and because he's the foreman, they gave him three packages. He's got all three going at once. You can just see the, like, he's like a bowling ball with eyes. Look, look, there I got my package. I look up and down the whole line there, you see? Every last one of the guys on the team has stuck this mule plug in his trap. And they're just sitting. Once in a while, one of them turned around and go, Pfft. They had the windows open, you know. It's just a steady stream going out there. Oh, these are men, I'll tell you. These guys are going to the open heart. They ain't going to Young and Rubicam, you know. Oh, yeah, you know. And the steel mill is smoking all around me, and you can hear the open heart banging away. Over there to the left, the blast furnace is cooking up another 18 billion pounds of black. And you look down here, and the open hearth is banging away again. And over here behind us is what they call the coal strip. The coal strip is not exactly a burlesque show. It's booming away, and Shepard's going into this thing. You know, it's been so exciting. Ever since I've been a kid, I've been in the outside looking at the steel. Now I'm in it. I got this thing in my hand. I can feel it crawling, moving. Now, you must remember that I came from a family where it was just kind of agreed the kids didn't smoke. You know, you know that kind of family, you know, just... And if you did, it was never mentioned. And once in a while, back at a gym, Swartz and Flick and Bruner or I, we would all take one little cigarette, you know, pretend we liked it, our eyes are watering. <laughs> that great? <laughs> no, it was very different now. As a matter of fact, most kids at the age of 10 are given a complete humidor set by their old man, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, for Christmas, a whole bit, you know. Well... I had never ever really smoked. Now, I am in the man. I am with the crowd. We go another 50 feet, 100 feet. It's getting hot. I can smell the steel works coming up. And without thinking anything about it, I take this piece of mule-cut navy plug, eight-hour day, with the claws, and just go, oh! <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, I never tasted applesauce like that, you know. <laughs> All of a sudden, an electric shock went from the back of my eyeballs down each leg and out the toes. Just boom, like that. I, it's fantastic. Just boom. 
and, and something began to burrow its way through this cheek and was attempting to come out this ear. And instantly, you know, it's fantastic. You do not know how much juice you contain. Something, I could hear a pump going inside of me. Goom, 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 it's going, boom, this stuff. It comes out in a big stream like a hose, you know. I'm sitting there. Next to me, Stanek is just going away with the salami on one side. He's got the eight-hour cut plug on the other. Well, you know, have you ever had the thing where you go into some situation and you're trying to get rid of your gum? Well, I don't know whether you've ever tried to get rid of 17 and a half ounces of cut plug so nobody sees it. It's like a football, you know? It's like a, because it expands, you know. It's got laces and everything on it now. You know, put back in there. And Stanek says to me, sitting next to me, you know, Stanek says, My God, our kid. <laughs> well, about 25 feet later, the guy sitting opposite me opens his lunch bucket and takes out a smoked fish. This is the kind of stuff they eat in the steel mill, see? He takes out the smoked fish. I see the smoked fish. I smell the salami next to me. The guy on the other side is now working his way through a popsicle. And all of this stuff came together with my mule cut plug and my sensitive psyche, my Hammond Hyde diploma, and it all went at once. Boom! I was... I'm sitting like this, you know. Oh, it's coming out of the ears. Put it in. I felt green, fantastic. Sitting in there in the dark. We pull up next to the steel mill, right next to the door where they have the big shipping dock, and they all pour out. I'm standing there. I go back around the other side of the truck. Ooh, ooh. You know that? Sh you know the shuddering kind. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Your knees are like... Oh, oh, oh. And I'll tell you one thing about cut plug. Cut plug is like a true traumatic experience. You never get rid of it. Well, I spent ten minutes back of that bus. Everything, it was amazing. I did not realize that inside of me there was still pablum. <laughs> I mean, stuff, I remember all of a sudden something from a Thanksgiving four years ago was there, you know? Fantastic, you know, and that, you know, that little, that little, that little snail that I ate one time and all the stuff, it's all there, nuts and bolts and saws and everything, you know? Holy smokes. Well, you know, I, I, when I went back at that bus, I was a, a kind of a medium-sized stocky guy. When I walked in, I was tall and skinny. I had been drawn out, and Stanek looked at me and said, Come on, let's go. We're in a hurry, Mac. Let's go. We're on tonnage. What do you think we're working on? And I got in line with him. And we're walking down through the open heart floor. Stanek turns to me about halfway through, and he says, Kid, you want another plug? No, you don't. Refuse. You don't refuse this kind of thing. After all, you know, when you're in the gang, you've got to be in the gang. 
Have you ever tried to say no, you know, to a second beer and everybody's yelling and hollering? You don't do that. So it's says, yeah, 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 Stanek, yeah. He says, here you are, Mac. He pushes it back and he gives me his own Czechoslovakian cut plug. Well, have you ever been anywhere near a nest of bats? Well, they produce something very interesting. And apparently that's what they use in Czechoslovakian chewing tobacco. He hands it back to me, and this thing has got beaks sticking out. Well, all night long, I am chewing this stuff. They keep giving it to me because everybody in this mill, it's so hot in there, and the fountain is four miles away. To keep from going dry, these guys chew chewing tobacco like we chew gum, you know. And I am about, believe me, I am now eight years old. I am going back rapidly. I'm seven. I'm a little kid standing there. Now I'm five. And they're all working. These big men are hitting and yelling and hollering. Hey, come on, let's bring over the number six truck. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Will you big guys let me play? Well, today, standing there in Yankee Stadium, I took a look at that magnificent stack of beechnut chewing tobacco and I realized that these men are not extinct. They're now making $45,000 a year, these guys, and they're still chewing it. In fact, I'm standing in the dugout and about 20 feet away, I shouldn't really say this because I'm letting out a trade secret. About 20 feet away, a ball player, one of the Yankees, a famous Yankee is standing, see? And I keep looking at him out of the corner of my eye. You know, this is a famous Yankee. And I'm standing there with my uniform, trying to look like I belong, you know, the whole bit. And another one of the ball players comes up to me and he says, how are you? And I says, hi. I said, gee, is that really so-and-so? And he says, yeah. I look again. And he says, hey, he says, you know, I saw you looking at that cut plug. I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, let me tell you about that guy. He says, he is famous all over the country as a guy that doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't date girls. He says, but one thing he does, he eats seven pounds of cut plug a day. <laughs> there he's standing, the stuff is squirting out. But I realize, you know, that there is so, there is so much that does not necessarily meet the eye. Oh, by the way, speaking of the eyeball, before we go any further, what radio station is this? Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> and what town are we in? New York. And New York is the big what? Apple. And it's also the big time. We've made it. <laughs> you know, isn't it funny? Seriously, did you see in the Times today? It's kind of sad. In the Times today, there was a little note in the Saturday Times, and it said, Ferris wheel for sale. World's Fair Ferris wheel. You know that big tire down there? That's for sale. They're trying to get rid of it, see? Already, they're chickening out out there at Flushing Meadows, you see? It says, Ferris, shh. It says, Ferris wheel for sale. And I, I, I read this, see, and underneath it it said, 
Thailand Bangkok temple for sale. And I thought, gee, what a fantastic pad. <laughs> Have you seen that temple with the bells and the dragons and the fantastic? Can you imagine a guy buying that and putting that on his vacant lot in the Bronx? <laughs> and you know, the wind comes up the Grand Concourse and turns right there at Fordham Road, you know? Past magnificent Alexander's. <laughs> And here's old Fred on 117th Street, 6SJ7, with his temple bells ringing. <laughs> well, I saw that and I said, gee, that's, you know, that's, that's, the, that's what's about to happen. They're going to tear that down. Now, you know, we all put the fair down. That's a fact. You know, you're a hippie, you've got to put it down. But yet, it's, it's exciting as you're going on your way someplace else to drive through the Long Island Expressway and see all that, isn't it really? Yeah, it really is. Even if you put it down, you know, all those lights and those things and that great big orange or whatever that awful thing is in the air there. <laughs> you know, they got a name for what that is out there at the fair. I can't tell you. We'll tell that out the air. It's got a great name, that big orange that sits up there, you know. And you see those lights. It's like fairyland. You go through there. Well, well, in, in some ways it is. Have you been out there lately? But <laughs> it's very campy, you know, gang, to go out there. However, however, you know, I, I, I read that thing and I, I got a little sad. You know, I said, gee whiz, wow, this thing is going to come down. And all the people who put it down, they're going to be left with a big vacant lot again. And you're going to have to look for something else to put down. That's not easy to find, you know. I know guys that have gotten out of school two years ago that still haven't gotten the right thing to get angry about. It's a big emptiness in the gut. And I read this thing and I said, gee whiz, that's a sad thing. In fact, one of the saddest things I ever saw and one of the most exciting things I ever saw was connected with the destruction of a World's Fair. You know, we always think of them building World's Fairs. Have you ever been on hand when they've knocked one down? Somehow, that is the end of something. Really. And in spite of the fact that fair has got a lot of wild scenes in it, you know those big arches? Can you imagine those big arches up there at the World's Fair? Have you seen them? And on the top it says, Peace through understanding. Well, someday, not too long from now, a guy is going to wheel up to one of these things with a bulldozer, with one of these big cranes with a big iron ball on it, and the guy in the bulldozer is going to holler, Okay, Charlie, which one of us? Let's flip for it. And the half buck will go in the air. It's all right, Charlie, you win. I'll back away the bulldozer. Go after it. Backs it away. And that great big crane picks that thing up, you know, that big thing that they swing the wrecked buildings? It's going to go back and forth. And then the last swing, boom! And high up in the air will be a sign. Peace through understanding. Boy, if that isn't symbolic of our whole time. And underneath it, there will be, there will be a little tag that says, presented as a public service by General Foods. What do they got to do with peace? Don't they make Wheaties with Super G? 
Well, all right. Most of us won't see that because we're living in a new time where people secretly kind of suppress the things they really dig. We're at a very self-conscious time. Can you imagine what, how many friends Robert Moses would make if two weeks after the fair there was an announcement in the paper it said, the World's Fair, which closed two weeks ago, invites you to come out to Flushing Meadows and watch them knock it down. Why, do you realize there'd be 17 million people out there? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that great big... How about seeing Walt Disney go up in a cloud of dust? Well, I'm a kid now. There was a World's Fair in Chicago that they built on the shore of the lake. It's beautiful. I was just a little tiny kid. And I wonder how many little kids are riding past that World's Fair who might have been four when it was built, you know, and opened up, and are now six. That means one-third of their life there's been a World's Fair. Yeah, sure, a lot of kids walk around, you know, and they hit each other in the back of the house. Gee, don't you, don't you miss the old days, Fred? Last Wednesday? It's all, it's all very, very definitely in perspective. Well, I'm a kid, see, I must have been about three or four. And every week we drive down the outer drive in Chicago with that big lake laying out there, and they're building the World's Fair. Now, that World's Fair looked very much like this one. Purple buildings, pink buildings, blue buildings, big yellow mushrooms and cartwheels, lights. They even had a Chinese pagoda standing there. And let me tell you, when you grow up next to a stockyards, you can't imagine how a Chinese pagoda looks. It's unbelievable. They had a real one that was brought over by China. And it was red and black and gold. And the rumor was put out that that was real gold on the roof. You know, they had the roof that's hammered gold. And from that day on, they had to post five guards with shotguns. The entire South Side was planning to steal a Chinese room. <laughs> that's the truth. You know, that's a fantastic problem. But every day we drive past this thing would get more and more fantastic. And then it was announced one day that they were going to create a thing, especially for kids. You know, they never did this in this fair here that in that World's Fair, they had a little World's Fair in the middle for kids. And it was called the Enchanted Island. Right in the middle of it. And it really made it. You know, usually that kind of stuff doesn't. But this really did. And they had in the middle of it a magic mountain. How do you like that? Right out of Thomas Mann. A magic mountain. And this magic mountain stood up about... Oh, I'd say about seven or eight or nine stories. It just was a big conical mountain. And on the top of it was snow. And down below it was a little symbolic Swiss fairyland, Grimm's fairy tale village, you know, with little houses and elves and stuff like that. And around it was a moat. And no adults were allowed. Absolutely none. And they had pictures of it in the paper. They had newsreels of it that they showed in the movies. And I began to develop this fantastic desire to go to the Magic Mountain. 
to go up to the top of it. And by the way, that was the whole center of the fair, was to go into this thing, climb to the top. Only kids under 12 were allowed. I was a good, cool four, you know? So I made it real big. <laughs> I was ready. Well, one day, my Aunt Min, my Uncle Carl, my mother, my father, my Uncle Tom, my Aunt Glenn, you know, the, the World's Fair scene. Do you remember when you were a kid? Now, really, you've got you've to concentrate for a minute. Really, honestly, we were all kids. Don't look bored. You were a kid once. Do you remember the moment when your mother and father and your aunts, everybody got together for a big, a really genuine safari to make the big day? You were all dressed up, and they took you somewhere. And it was somewhere that had been sort of abstract to you up to that time. It's like a little kid being taken to heaven or Oz or something. And here all these big grown-up people were. I'm with my cousin Merle, who was a little you know, a girl type. My cousin Buddy and my kid brother Randy. And all of us go into the fair. It's the first day we've been to the fair. They have been building this fair as long as I could remember. This goes back, you know, all years they've been building. Every day we drive past this thing, and now we're in it. And at the Magic Mountain, my mother says, all right, let's go, kids. Now look, Jeannie, you've got to watch out for your cousin Merle, who is littler than you. And you've got to watch out for your, for your kid brother. And Joyce, who is bigger than all of you, will watch out for you. So all five of the kids, all by ourselves, go into this enchanted, enchanted island. We each have 15 cents to spend. Well, over here, they're, they're selling model airplanes. And over here, they're selling ice cream. And everybody's dressed like, it was an early Disneyland. Everybody's dressed like elves and stuff. There's only one thing I wanted to do, the Magic Mountain. So I says to Joyce, I'm going on the Magic Mountain. Come on, Randy, let's go. You watch the kids, will you? My kid goes, yeah, you know. The two of us go to the gate. It costs 12 cents to get in. And here we could see this mountain standing up there. And it was a long line of kids going in. And you couldn't see them coming out. <laughs> Which made it even better, you know. They just went in, see. They had it specially fixed so you went out the other side. Only we didn't know that. So we go up to the gate. I've got 15 cents. Randy's got 15 cents. They give us three cents change. We walk into the line. We stand there, inching forward. And I'm getting more excited. We've been hearing about this World's Fair for years in town. We've been hearing about the Magic Mountain for years. Getting closer. You could see those little villages. And you could see streams. They had it all painted, you know, like avalanches and mountain goats, the whole bit, closer and closer. And now we're walking up this thing. We're beginning to edge up. And on the side of the mountain was a spiral staircase that had a high wall so that you couldn't see over. I guess that's to keep the kids from flying out. And so we start working up, each one of us. A whole long line of little kids. Each one of these kids, by the way, 
is realizing a dream. We're walking up this thing, sweating. The sun is beating down on us. Now mothers are gone. Fathers are gone. There's just kids in the world. All of us going up. And you can hear once in a while a kid up there crying. You hear another kid behind it. Come on, quit pushing, will ya? They're working their way up. And about every 10 or 15 feet, there's a guard standing, you know, a grown-up man with a blue uniform. He just keeps saying, move along. Come on, let's go, kids. Come on, move it up. <laughs> working up this way. And it goes on for hours. This thing's about nine stories high, and it's going up, you know, up, up, up. Where are we going? Hour after hour, we're struggling. Sweat. Now the magic mountain is forgotten. It's just a fantastic struggle, that's all. It's like Sisyphus, you know. Camus, struggling up. Up ahead, there was a sharp left turn, which I will remember to the end of my days. A sharp left turn, the kids would disappear. You wouldn't see him. So I'm working. Kid ahead of me, whoop, he goes around a corner. <laughs> Nothing, see? I go around a corner, and here's a guy. He grabs him by the arms. All right, kid, let's go. There's a black hole in the side of the mountain. He says, come on, let's go, kid. Sit down fast, this way, and go. Boom! I am going into a fantastic cavern. Down I go. I'm sliding down, down, down. Spinning around a thousand times, I'm sick and I'm flying up and down. This thing is the most incredible slide I've ever been on in my life. <laughs> I am dropping at 4,000 feet a second into hell. And I hear a kid way in the darkness hitting me go, ow, ow, ow. And back of me, I hear another kid go, ow. And I don't even know it. Here I am. All of a sudden, I'm aware I'm going, ah. And you hear this whole thing is echoing with fantastic scream. Ah! Down and out. I, oh, nothing. You can't see anything but darkness. All of a sudden, there's a little white light swirling around me. I'm getting closer and closer. Whoa, out I go. There's the sun. Moon. What? A guard is standing over me. He grabs my arm. He says, okay, kid, get moving. And he slapped a plastic fire chief hat on my head. It says, courtesy of Texaco. I go, what? What? And then behind me, oh! out comes my brother Randy. He's great. Ah! Bang, out with the hat. They throw him through. I got Randy like this. Oh. Oh. Randy is crazy. He's, he's so far gone, he's not crying anymore, you know. It's that little kid thing where they got the dry heaves, you know. He's like, oh, oh. I said, come on, let's go. I got to guard you, you know. Oh. Suddenly, there we are outside the gates. There is Aunt Min. There is my mother with the flower dress. <laughs> there is Uncle Carl. My mother says, Did you have fun? Would you like to go on it again? Red is... <laughs> my mother says, Did you hit him? I, I can't talk. I'm just going. She said, if you hit him again, off we go. Well, we spent at least eight hours in the fair, and my kid brother and myself, for eight hours, 
are in a state of suspended animation. With the plastic fire chief hat on our head, they take us through the Turkish village, they take us through the Bulgarian village, they take us through the Hall of Science, and I'm still floating. All I can remember is that fantastic slide that goes down. Ever since that day, friends, I have been very suspicious of great dreams. Ever since that day, I have been very careful about building up this fantastic drive to do something that seems to recede into the distance. And do you realize that in just a couple of days, comparatively, they will be knocking down that There went on in Chicago for about two years. And all the hippies put it down, you know. And all the guys who went out there put it down as they went. And standing right in the middle of the fair were two towers, huge towers, standing up 600 feet into the air. And they were the symbol of the fair. And they'd light up at night. They had green lights and blue lights. And you could see them all the way into Indiana. You could see them into Wisconsin. And connecting these two towers, and by the way, one of them was on an island, and the other was maybe 2,000 yards away, standing on the mainland. And connecting the two was a cable. And on that cable, running back and forth, were little cars, little gondolas. Now, you wouldn't believe it, but those two towers were named after two radio stars. Do, do any of you know who they were named after? One tower was named Amos, and the other tower was named Andy. Yeah, that was their official names. Have you noticed that the World's Fair out there just doesn't have that kind of flair? Amos and Andy. We would name them something like Prometheus and Electra. You know, in this new day. Wouldn't it be great if they named if they named a rocket uh, something like uh, Johnny Carson. <laughs> you know, a rocket to send to Mars. Well, you know, something like that. Or, or name it the Barbara Streisand. A real killer, you know. Well, here are these two towers, Amos and Andy. And every day we drive through and see these two towers standing there. These little tiny cars with lights on them going back and forth. And each car was named after a character from the radio show. Madam Queen, the Kingfish, there was one named Brother Crawford, these beautiful streamlined cars. And all of a sudden, without any warning, it was fall and the fair was over. Well, I want to tell you, fellow Americans, there is no sadder sight in the world than a world's fair that's been discarded. It's like an old Kleenex. It's like last year's New Year's party. And you can see cigar butts, you know. Have you ever gotten up two days after a party and the paper hats are laying there and everything else? And you see a shoe somebody left? There was this empty, deserted world's fair. The Hall of Science, the Hall of Magic, Amos, Andy, the lights were turned off and the cars didn't go back and forth anymore. 
and the people drive past every day and see it and it began to get rusty you could see the Chinese pagoda had turned from red to kind of a brown and you could see the hall of, of science had turned vaguely green with yellow spots on it well one Sunday they announced in the newspapers and this is the kind of thing I'd love to see the World's Fair do they announced in the newspaper that this Sunday at 3 o'clock, Amos and Andy were coming down. That's all they said. Well, my old man, who was a disaster fan, <laughs> I tell you, I, I, one great sorrow in my life is that my old man departed this veil of tears before they invented the A-bomb. He would have loved it. You know, it's serious. He, he loved wherever there was an explosion, where there was a fire, where there was a fist fight down at Flick's Tavern, he would hear sirens, he'd run out, jump into the car, and go after them. Or he was sucked into many of them, by the way. He'd come home all bloody, you know, throw on a fight, wow. My mom said, now why did you go after that one? He said, I don't know, there were just two guys outside of Flick's. It was fantastic. He loved disasters. And so that Sunday, my father... My mother and the two kids are taken to watch Amos and Andy come down. Well, we thought we'd be the only ones. You know, the old man says, gee, let's go see that. You know, take it down. You ought to be able to see it. The lakefront was black with people. Millions of people standing there, all waiting, looking at the towers. Can you imagine what kind of a crowd they would get if they announced tomorrow at 3 the Empire State Building's coming down? They're just going to knock it down. All of Jersey would come. Oh, they love Rex there. So we stood there and waited. My father's getting more excited by the minute. Really, you can just see it coming up from inside of him. And you see little men down there at the bottom of the, of the towers. And they're putting bombs in place. Believe it or not, they brought it down with bombs. They're putting bombs in place. They all run away and stand back. And all of Chicago stood there on the lakefront watching. And you can hear them counting. Ten, nine, over a PA system. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Boom, it went. And these two 600-foot towers began to tilt down and down. And the crowd roared. Fantastic roar went up. Boom! And then everybody stood there and felt rotten. <laughs> everybody stood there. Well, we turn to Gene Shepard at 11.05. After news on WOR Radio. In